You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk, a podcast seeking to approach the study of Bible prophecy soberly, without bias, and with a consistent hermeneutic. My name is Chris White, and today I'm going to be discussing uh, an audio sent to me by a listener and a friend named Bob. I've played some of his audios on the podcast before. As I mentioned then, he always keeps me on my toes and challenges me about the things that I say in this podcast, and um, he has offered some really good ideas and, and questions regarding the recent podcast that I put out called The Geopolitical Rise of Antichrist. And so what I'm going to do is play a clip, uh, a short clip of what he says, and then my responses and, and repeat uh, that process until we get to about 40 minutes or however long this podcast ends up being. And I would also say if you're listening to this and you feel lost, don't worry. Um, the best thing to do is to go back through the archives and kind of catch up um, if you're feeling lost. So I think a lot of this does require you to go through some of the earlier studies, like the study of Daniel, uh, particularly Daniel 2 and 7, uh, Daniel 8. Um, both of the, Well, Daniel 2 and 7 both have videos out. And the Mystery Babylon study, I think, is an important one to go through. That is also on, available both on audio as well as video. And I'm going to try to start putting all of this together in one place. That's a project that I have uh, to, to do here is to get all the videos and all the podcasts from all the different prophecy-related stuff into one place so they can be uh, easily accessed and downloaded, etc. So, But the best way to do that right now is just subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Bible Prophecy Talk, and download the entire archives and start from the beginning. Um, so anyway, without further ado, here is Bob's comments and my responses. Uh, one question that came to mind is if the Antichrist originates from the Macedonian Greece area, uh, how does that jive with the teaching that the Antichrist will be a Syrian? Okay, so first I'm going to give a short answer to this specific question. Then I'm going to give some clarifications about the idea of a Grecian Antichrist and some further thoughts about that. And then later on, the next question, we're going to talk in great detail about the possibility of the Assyrian. So first, the short answer to your question is that I don't think it matters what country the Antichrist comes to power in and rules from initially. He, his, his ethnicity could be completely different from that. Um, he could he could be the 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 president or uh, congressman of Greece or Syria or or who, wherever, but his nationality could be Jewish or Arab or you know Chinese or anything else. So or Asian, I guess I should say. But you know what I'm saying is that he could, he could have a different ethnicity and also be ruling from a, a different country. So it, it's not necessary that his nationality and his ethnicity uh, need to be one and the same. One further clarification about the Antichrist and his, and his uh, coming, possibility of coming from Greece is that I should expand that to also include Thrace, possibly, um, as if you look at it on a map, the, the four uh, post-Alexander empires, Thrace and Greece were, were two of those four empires, both of which are really in the West, in Daniel 11, it, as I mentioned, it doesn't mention at all a king of the West, and it mentions the East in a sense that is not calling it the king of the East. It, it simply says of the Antichrist that news of, 
from the east will trouble him, and he'll go out and, and conquer them too. So, so he goes out and conquers somebody in the east because of the news from the east that troubles him. So I think it, it's possible that Scripture is not telling us that, that the eastern part of that conquest that he goes to conquer is not necessarily a part of those that four empire that four empires. And it, it should be noted, uh, although I would say it does seem stronger that whatever, wherever the Antichrist comes from would probably have to come from one of those four divisions of the, uh, the empire after Alexander's death because of Daniel 8 and, as I mentioned, because of the uh, Daniel, um, comparing Daniel 7 with Daniel 11 and, and Revelation 13 and all the stuff that we went through in that last podcast. But again, I want to say extremely tentatively, that that that's a tentative idea. I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up being, you know, whatever any of the others that are there, you know, Syrian or 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 Egyptian or uh, you know Thrace or whatever. But it, but I also just want to mention that it could also be just as easily based on what I was saying there before. It could easily be Thrace because they're both extreme west of of the so-called King of the North and King of the South there, and it's so it could so we should also keep an eye on Thrace. Uh, as well as uh, Greece in the geopolitical watch for Antichrist, because I think both based on my current understanding, that could uh, that could be important. I also want to say that my current understanding is just that. Um, I hope that I'm not giving the impression that I have figured this out and I'm telling everybody where the Antichrist is coming from, because I am doing, you know, in the study of Daniel right now for my own benefit, and um, and I expect as I get more information, not just in Daniel, but in other studies, of uh, of these relevant passages that I ex- expect to modify or at least expect to clarify or um, further get more information about it. Uh, moving on, is there really something in Psalm 83 or are people reading into the text uh, set up to Gog-Magog event, which we know is not going to occur until after the millennium? That's rock solid, but I've not, forgive me, I haven't, I hadn't had time to go back and reread Psalm 83 that many think is a precursor to Gog, but if if there really is some type of conflict there involving Israel, then and it's current day, then I would think that it's going to be tied to uh, some of these setup of the Wars of the Antichrist or takes place during that. So. Uh, just throwing that out there. Okay, the so-called Psalm 83 war, which I would say is a really bad name for it because no war happens in Psalm 83. That's that's the main point. Um, and we'll see what fallacy I think it is to make Psalm 83 a necessary part of doctrine, you know, as as a lot of people will say. Oh, the Psalm 83 war, you know, they, they debate about when will it come in relation to the Gog-Magog war, which, of course, both of them, they think it will happen any day now. Um, the Gog-Magog war is a real doctrinal future war that will happen, but as you mentioned, uh, we're given a time stamp for when that will happen, that is, um, after the millennial reign, Revelation 20. Uh, whether or not that has a dual fulfillment beforehand is an open question, but I would say it's not very likely. What we do know is that the Gog-Magog War happens after the millennium. Therefore, it's not something we should be worried about, and we should also not be trying to figure out who Gog and Magog and Tubal and Meshach are, because 
you know, during that thousand year reign is probably when those terms will make a little bit more sense. But to us right now, they're not going to. Um, but anyways, the point is with this Psalm 83 war, they, they say it's a different one. And the reason they say it's a different one is because the, the players, according to their, they, again, they have their own players for who they think the Gog Magog war is going to be, but they're not the same as those players that appear in this particular psalm. In fact, the, the players here are relatively local. It's a local affair, Jordan and, and uh, those in kind of like that Gaza Strip. And, and, you know, Syria is in there and some others, but it's mostly a kind of local, a pretty small little confederacy. And so they have to say, well, it's a different thing. This is just in Israel's local enemies. It must be a war that goes on there. But as I said, no war happens here. Psalm 83 uh, I'm going to read some verbs that happen about what these guys are doing. This is this psalm is just like the other psalms. Now, this one's by Asaph, but David has a whole lot of psalms that are simply like, God, what am I going to do? My enemies are taking counsel against me. They all hate me. They're planning on kill me. Would you please destroy them? Would you please break their teeth? You know, all these things that David will say that are basically, you know, how many psalms are there that are like that? Lord, there are enemies all around me. Would you please take care of them? That's that's what David's doing. That's what Asaph's doing here. Now, keep listen to these verbs of what's happening. Psalm 83.3. They have taken crafty counsel uh, against your people. Uh, next verse. They have said, come, let us cut, off, cut them off from being a nation. Uh, next verse. For they have consulted together with one consent. They have formed a confederacy against you. Okay, so... The, nothing about they're coming to attack, they have attacked, they're going, their attack is intimate. This is all crafty counsel. They have said, they have consulted, they have formed a confederacy. These, these guys haven't done a single thing. The, this, this psalm is being written as a result of a confederacy, some, some basically some intelligence that has come back to Asaph about what the nations are wanting to do, that is to make them cease from being a nation. And his prayer is simply, O oh God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Um, and if, as the fire burns with wood and the flame sets in the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they must seek your name, O oh Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Let, let them put to shame and perish. Even in what he asks the Lord to do is no uh, phrases or things that make us think of anything eschatological. This is just regular old judge them please lord kind of talk it's not you know we don't hear like a phrase that makes hearken to gog magog or you know revelation 19 or any other place in scripture these are just just words you know pursue them fill their faces with shame let them be confounded dismayed this is not um this is not calling us to action to do to consider this to be a future prophecy in any way so when you listen to the people that, that propose that Psalm 83 is a coming war that must happen, the argument that they make is always, always the same. It's one thing, it's one phrase that they'll say, and it is this. We know that this has to be yet future because no, none of these nations in history have ever been shown to fight a war against Israel. Th these nations have never fought a war with Israel yet, and therefore we know that this is a prophecy of the future. And the reason that's so dumb is, number one, no war was fought. This was a council, a crafty council that was being made, uh, consulting together. There is no indication in this psalm that this war ever was imminent. In fact, if we were to understand that Asaph, Asaph's 
prayer was answered. These guys never got the, 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 the first thing started with the war because they were confused and, you know, they were put to shame and, and frightened and all this other stuff. So the war never even happened if God answered Asaph's prayer, which is, you know, up in the air whether or not Psalms, you know, if somebody prays it in the Psalm requires God to answer it or not, that's a whole other theological issue. But the point is, that's what Asaph was praying for, that this war would never happen. So to say that this must be a prophecy of the future because this war never occurred is ridiculous. Um, and that is the entire theological precedent for saying Psalm 93 must come in the future. A second question. Have you dug into all the work that others present that the Antichrist is going to be Assyrian, things like that, or Asher, called by that name? And uh, if it's uh, if this Assyrian is just guilt by association, happen to be close to some Antichrist passages, or if there really is something to it. Okay, this question about the Assyrian, and do I think that this is doctrine of the Antichrist? And I would say that of most of what I've seen about the Assyrian being a reference to the Antichrist, I am convinced most of those passages are just talking about Sennacherib who was an Assyrian and who plays a major role in terms of being the the boogeyman of of most of the prophets or some of the prophets lives and is in view in many passages including Isaiah 10 which is often referenced as being doctrine of the antichrist Isaiah 10 is is of all the passages seemingly the the the, the least possible to be doctrine of the antichrist as it's not even it doesn't even have type of antichrist language it's just it's just talking about Sennacherib and and you know the Assyrian is clearly Sennacherib. What's talked about, you know, happened in history. It's just the story, you know. Um, that being said, I think Sennacherib is a type of Antichrist. I think he's high up on the list of types of Antichrist, and and it's because of that that I think people um, a lot of this comes from is they can point to certain things that the Assyrian does and the type of judgment that he is given and say, hey, that's similar to the Antichrist. And for that reason, uh, I think we get a lot of this stuff. Because Sennacherib, if you'll remember with Rabshakeh, who sat on the wall and, and, and blasphemed against God and, and all this stuff, and who was destroyed in a very remarkable way, that is to say Sennacherib's armies were destroyed, which God attributes to Sennacherib you know, himself, even Rabshakeh's uh, blaspheming, uh, is attributed by God as Sennacherib's blasphemy, and even though Sennacherib was not there. Uh, it, it basically, Reb Shekha was speaking on, on behalf of Sennacherib as far as, far as God was concerned and when he was blaspheming and declaring himself to be better than God and all this stuff. Well, and that's obviously a kind of type of Antichrist. And the 185,000 Assyrians that were destroyed overnight by the angel, you know, that can all be looked at, uh, you know, as as similar and a type of Antichrist. Now, we, we look at that and we look at people like Antiochus and others that are types of Antichrist in Scripture, and we take what we can in terms of types, but we need to be extremely careful about what we take for, for doctrine. Because if he is, if, if, if now he's the Assyrian because Sennacherib was an Assyrian, then what do we do with the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon and, and, and all these others? Uh, I would even suggest Herod Antipas and, and, you know, Antiochus and all these others. We could even make a case for Pharaoh and other people that, that are types of Antichrist that, um, 
that are not from Assyria, you know? So we can't build doctrine of the Antichrist on types. There needs to be some other reference to the Assyrian that gives us that kind of, uh, of, of license. And Isaiah 10 is just not doing it. What, uh, of all the ones that have been proposed, Hosea is often uh, mentioned. And you have to remember, uh, in Micah too, both of these guys are dealing with Sennacherib as not just prophesying about his eventual uh, destruction of the northern kingdom, but, you know, how he, you know, in some way relaying what happens as they besiege Judah and everything else. It's a big part of Israel's history to talk about the Assyrian. And he is clearly in view. And anybody that doesn't know that the Assyrian is Sennacherib is missing the point. I mean, it's clear that the Assyrian is Sennacherib. The question is whether it also is speaking of the Antichrist. And again, even in the few passages that are clearly types of Antichrist, none of those are giving us direct doctrine that we can take from it necessarily. There is one passage that I think warrants this kind of attention, and it is the only passage that I know that warrants uh, further study, and that is in Micah 5, chapter 5. I'm going to read from, um, I'll read from the New King James. This is a prophecy of um, a the Messiah. This is a familiar idea, but you, O Bethlehem, you are still among, this is starting in verse 2, you, Bethlehem, um, you know, you're little among thousands of Judah, yet out of you will come forth one to be ruler of Israel. So it's it's clearly talking about the Messiah. And this is also in the sense of, the what we would know as the millennial kingdom a lot of i think that's an important thing to to get from what's being discussed here about about this micah is prophesying about the messiah in the conquering leader of the nations you know jerusalem being the capital city of the world all na- you know isaiah 65 and all the stuff that we get of the millennial kingdom there is uh, you know real nations that go up and serve the lord and that god literally judges them with an iron rod if they don't go up no rain comes you know there, there's a lot of stuff going on in the millennium like that so that's what I think is being discussed here, one that is, quote, ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that uh, she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now, this is in my opinion, talking clearly about the millennium. And what follows is also talking about the millennium. And this one shall be peace. Okay, so peace in the millennium. When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and princely men. Okay, now this is where we're, we're getting into the thing. Micah 5.5. 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. An interesting thing that it says here that... Now, I, I should mention that how the Net Bible translates this before I go any further. The Net Bible says, He will give us peace should the Assyrians try to invade our land and attempt to set foot in our fortresses. We will send against him seven uh, shepherd rulers, make that eight commanders. So the, the, the Net Bible understands this as a hypothetical situation. A hypothetical situation that makes a good deal more sense when we realize that that is the boogeyman of Micah's day the Assyrians, dealing with the Assyrian threat, 
uh, as Micah, you know, writes and writing of this prophecy of the Messiah when he says, according to the Net Bible, should the Assyrians try to invade our land and attempt to set foot in our fortresses, we will send against him seven shepherd rulers. Make that eight commanders. Now, what he says will happen if that happens is that they're going to send forth seven shepherd rulers that make that eight commanders. Now, if we take this to mean that uh, this is a precursor to the millennium, a war that must happen, we're going to have to destroy Assyria. What is this seven shepherd rulers make that eight commanders? Um, I mean, what could that what, what could that possibly refer to? As far as I know, there's no precedent for that. Um, but I think that there is precedent if we're talking about the millennial bureaucracy described uh, in no in detail in Ezekiel 39 and following up to the you know last of Ezekiel talking about the city of Yahweh Shema that is the the future city of 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 the Lord um, and and it's it's new temple where the Jews are you know d- divided up into you know different tribes the numbers are given the certain rulers are given there's an entire bureaucracy there that I think that's what's being talked about and and delegations or whatever you want to look at that as people are sent out um and as it begins to describe here it's like Israel is a lion and the rest of the the nations are sheep that that they go and destroy whatever they want in a sense they're not actually destroying but that's the sort of power that they could wield and i think that what we have here in this idea of sending out seven shepherd rulers, make that eight commanders, is referring to Israel's delegation of power in the millennium. That is to say, different from what you would expect. If this was a precursor to a, you know a pre-fight with Assyria that must happen before the millennium, but rather talking about the type of bureaucracy in the in the millennial reign. Um, and it continues. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword. The land of Nimrod will draw the sword. Our king will rescue us from the Assyrians should they attempt to invade our land and try to set foot in our territory. This is basically a, a restating of verse 5. If they set foot in our territory or invade our land, you know, they would be uh, doomed. Uh, the uh, They would be doomed. It continues, and I think gives the sense of this, um, when it says, those survivors from Jacob will live in the midst of many nations. They will be like the dew of the Lord sins, like rain on the grass that does not hope for men to come or wait around for humans to arrive. This is I'm reading from the Net Bible. Those survivors from Jacob will live among the nations in the midst of many peoples. They will be like a lion among animals of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which attacks when it passes through. It rips prey and there is no one to stop it. Lift your hand triumphantly against your adversaries. May all your enemies be destroyed. So the sense that I think that this is giving is that that Israel has this new triumphant power over their adversaries. It's not saying that they will destroy anybody. It's not. This is not talking. You can't get anything out of this of a war that did happen uh, necessarily. I think you can read that in some of the other uh, translations of this. But I think that the idea that this is hypothetical um, is is in view as the Net Bible has it, partially because of course that is what they are dealing with at the moment and saying, you know, if this kind of thing that we're dealing with now happens then, then this is what we would do. You know, that's the kind of authority and power that we will have when Messiah comes. So the one, and again, this is the one thing that I would say is, uh, is close to there being a necessary doctrine about the Antichrist in Assyrian. And even then, and even then, if you if you suggested that the th- this wouldn't necessarily be the Antichrist, um, 
it would just be if you had to have this be what everybody's saying it, it, it is then it still wouldn't necessarily be the Antichrist because this alone would constitute the only doctrine that you can make about it. But again, I, I suggest this is a hypothetical situation that Micah 5 is talking about. In, clearly in the context of the millennium, impossible to get out of that in my, in my estimation. So, And of course, the sending out people and the fact that this is sort of a delegation to the tribes. In what sense are you going to delegate that kind of responsibility during the during the uh, time preceding the millennium. So if anything, this could be seen as something that happens in the millennium, but it it should not be pushed before the millennium, in my opinion. And and of course, as I just detailed, I don't think it needs to, I don't think it's a war that ever happens. I think it's a hypothetical situation based on Micah's um, fears and the people of Israel's fears and that hypothetical situation that is never going to happen when Messiah comes. Another thought is uh, what scenarios would lead Israel and the Antichrist to to uh, consume the uh, surrounding territories and yet still lead the world to worship the Antichrist. I uh, I can see your thoughts on maybe something happens to Israel that brings about sympathy, but other than the United States, I think the world would dance in glee if Israel was brought to the brink of destruction. I, I just cannot see any situation where there would be pity from any Middle Eastern country and uh, not many else in the West as well. Okay, so how could this all come about? The idea is what I think I see in Scripture is that the Antichrist is going around just completely annihilating Muslim nations. The All the, the conglomerate Muslim nations we know as the king of the north, which includes Iraq, Iran, Syria, Afghanistan, all those nations as well as Egypt and, and, and Libya and, um, you know, uh, all, Nigeria and all the, or not Nigeria, whatever, whatever Ethiopia is, uh, according to the Bible, and which are all, if you take a look at a map, it's Muslim world is what he's de- destroying. And that, of course... Uh, as we're compounding that with what we see in Revelation uh, with the worship of the Antichrist in Revelation 17 and 18, that is that the world is made drunk by the fierceness of the worship of Jerusalem for what they believe to be the Messiah. They think, hey, the Messiah is here. He has fulfilled all these prophecies by destroying our enemies. And now we are, um, um, you know, we're, we're, we're the city that uh, is on the hill and we are, you know, all the all the stuff that's supposed to happen when the Messiah comes back. And the world, according to Revelation 17, is made drunk by the, the, the fierceness of that fornication that they are uh, embarking on, their worship of the Antichrist. So it, it gives a suggestion, in my opinion, that the world is sort of drawn into the worship of the Antichrist as the Jewish Messiah. I see this as is, is, is part of what the that guy says is, look, this is the real prophecy of the Messiah. This Jesus guy, uh, you know, he wasn't the real Messiah. I mean, and he'll whatever. This is what the Messiah was supposed to do, and this is what I'm doing. And somehow the world is going to buy that and not buy Jesus Christ. The the Christians, therefore, are going to be ostracized for that reason alone, in my opinion. Among others, probably, but whatever. The point is, uh, how is that supposed to happen? You brought up the fact that if and I suggested a, a a possible precursor to the Antichrist's wars. That is, if he's going to go out conquering all these nations on his um, way to being this unconquered hero, then um, 
then how does that happen? And I suggest perhaps something really bad happens to Israel, and that gives them the sort of moral justification to go and conquer all the Muslims. And you suggested that the world would, would and I agree, that the world is very anti-Semitic, and none of that seems likely that a lot of sympathy would happen for Israel. And I, su- I suggest that the world was still anti-Semitic when the Holocaust was happening, but yet after the Holocaust, the world was sympathetic enough to you know, do something that, that would never happen today. That is, you know, the whole um, movement to to give them their own land and everything else. That I don't want to pursue or push that too hard because whether or not there's a precursor event that is uh, is still an open question. But one thing I will say is that if you take the whole the way the world feels about Judaism out of the, out of the equation, and you simply take the way the world feels about terrorism, uh, and you could see, well, for whatever reason, a guy embarks on a complete annihilation of um, the Muslim world can be seen as a good by a lot of the majority of the people because that is what all of our mainstream uh, press and everything else is pushing. The anti, the you know, Muslim terrorism is is the new boogeyman. So if you can defeat that, you're essentially solving the world's problem, which is terrorism. So that seems to be more of what uh, I think that is in view there, more than taking into account my suggestion that some uh, you know, false flag or regular flag event happens on Israel, which then gives the world sympathy. That may or may not happen, but certainly the destruction of the Muslim world by uh, this individual and w- will will seem to be a good thing, if only for that reason. But again, it could be for something completely different. I don't want to say force our current geopolitical context into Daniel 11 or any of the other passages because it could very well be a completely different scenario that has caused this war to either be necessary or justified um, or whatever. So just, just take it with a grain of salt, but we do know that scripture says that it will happen. The Antichrist will destroy the Muslim world. Another thought is uh, the world really only hates two entities. The rest of the world really only hates two other entities, and that's the U.S. and Israel. And it's difficult to believe that Israel would trust anyone outside of their own except maybe a U.S. entity. And... I just don't see any way the U.S. being a direct uh, representation of one of those four beasts. Maybe they're part of a coalition, but are there any other entities in the world that has or would show partiality toward the Jews? And I do want to say with that, I went digging on the Internet, and this is pretty shallow research here, but... I was just Googling for allies of Israel, and what came up was Greece, Macedonia, and Cyprus. And I wanted to tell you, if you haven't seen this, it's, there are several wiki pages uh, related to various topics on this, but Greece and Israel and Cyprus have a very strong bond. Uh, Cyprus is a huge vacation location for Israelis because they offer civil marriages. And what it, what it said on the page is that you cannot get a marriage, a civil marriage, 
inside Israel. It has to be a religious marriage. The only place to get it, or the closest place to get it, in a friendly territory that recognizes Israel, is in Cyprus. And along with that, the nation-states of Israel, Greece, and Cyprus have entered into a joint agreement uh, of the world's largest, longest uh, electrical grid line that will be over 600 miles on the bottom of the ocean. It'll directly link Israel with Cyprus, and then from Cyprus to Greece, there's already a direct cable on the bottom of the, uh, I guess, the Mediterranean Sea. But they they literally already have a tri an energy triad, and uh, I believe it's called the Euro. Uh, forgotten the name of of this energy project, but uh, it's one of the world's largest. Uh, some other notes that I found. Uh, is Macedonia obviously bordering Greece, though they only have 200 Jews there. They, for some reason or another, they have one of the largest, world's largest Holocaust museums or memorials, and specifically states on the wiki page that Macedonia ha- or Israel has a great love for Macedonia, which during World War II there was tremendous persecution from what I saw, and <clears throat> and. Bordering that is Bulgaria to the east, I believe, and they were one of the few that offered asylum or did not offer up their Jews uh, to the concentration camps when everyone else did. In fact, I think it said 48,000 Jews were spared in Bulgaria. Uh, so there is, it, that area is very, uh, very interesting. <clears throat> regarding its relationship to the nation of Israel historically. And uh, so not trying to get ahead of ourselves here, <clears throat> but I am just looking at what what might lead to some things that you have been <clears throat> putting out there to uh, think about. And it is certainly intriguing when you see the relationship of energy being Built and it's been driven because of their the icing of the relationship with Turkey, and uh, now with the Leviathan energy field or or gas field that was discovered by Israel, one of the world's largest, if not the largest, uh, natural gas reserves, um, and this electrical grid, they could become a huge power broker in the Middle East, two of the smallest countries in the world, which uh, just is even more amazing when, when you think about Little Horn and all it implies, the insignificance on the world scene. I want to jump ahead with another thought, and this is really jumping ahead, but when you think about the beast and one of the heads was appeared as if slain, we always... Most of the time we think about a person in the Antichrist, but and maybe there's a dual fulfillment here with Greece and the Antichrist from Greece or Macedonia, but I couldn't help but think of Greece basically being dead financially and as a national entity and uh, just how crazy it would be if they were to rise to power after being the first 
nation in history to declare bankruptcy, bankruptcy and uh, on the brink of disaster. So uh, uh, back to some other notes. I'm going to go quick. Um, one thought about the lion that was raised up and given the heart of a man. I remember I was reading my net Bible, a New English translation, and it said he was given the mind of a man. And I do it. it I go back to a, a lecture that I received at our church from a, a Hebrew and Greek professor from Treveca, and he used the word lav or lave, L-A-V-E. I forgot how it's pronounced. I believe it's Hebrew. Uh, it was used, forgot where he, where he told me it was used, but he said basically it was interchangeable between heart and mind and that basically it was the seat of emotions, uh, and how as Westerners we think of the mind. We don't believe our heart is where our brain is, but, uh, the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew thought of their heart as the mind, I don't know that they necessarily thought their brain was there, but certainly it was the seat of their emotions. And I just looked at that as, not to refute you, but wondered if there's a secondary meaning to that lion being, lion to man being a barbaric nation to one of civilization and domestication, and with that there's always a loss of bravery. Anything that's completely wild will will attack without regard to its own uh, well-being or whether it's uh, put itself in uh, with too much to, to uh, you know, bites off more than it can chew, if you know what I mean. So I think it's the same, uh, the same imagery, but... Uh, Maybe a different, uh, coming from a different slant or view there. Uh, I totally agree that that is a valid interpretation of that. And I would suggest that, that with that Daniel 7 study that I did, um, I really wanted that, the interpretation of what the, the meaning of those beasts to be, what they were rather, to be, um, done by other people. I, I wrote it in such a way to sort of give people ideas. Uh, and, and, and kind of give a, uh, them a direction in terms of looking to Scripture for the interpretation of those things as opposed to how we have been doing it for so many years, that is, uh, looking at it in light of Daniel 2 and just sort of forcing that square peg into the round hole there. When, you know, the lion being stood up on its feet and its wings plucked off and given a heart of a man, that we can look to Scripture for those uh, idioms and that we can have a scriptural interpretation of the, that symbolic imagery to determine the nature of these uh, four empires that will be um, uh, at the time of Antichrist's rise to power. So I really wanted people to do exactly what you're doing, is to be to consider, because I do think that, that that is one of the major keys as to figuring out what geopolitically we should be looking for um, as this time progresses. So and, and I didn't put the effort into it so much to to determine what that was, but just a real broad outline of what it looked like. So, so good job with that, and that goes for much of what I've been doing. Is is, is really my my thought process is to do initial um, stuff for the people later on that will actually figure it out. Um, 
I'm not necessarily trying to figure all that stuff out. I'm trying to get the person who is going to figure it out to figure it out. I'm extremely intrigued by your thoughts about the Ark of the Covenant because that really is the one thing that could embolden such a tiny entity to act with great boldness if uh, it would absolutely transform the nation of Israel as well as all believers. And uh, and then one last thought. I'd seen an article on Sunni versus Shia and how the conflict in Syria is more than just rebels uh, overthrowing a government and whatever else is going on behind the scenes that there really is. I saw where Egypt had uh, called for jihad against Syria, e- Egypt being Sunni, I believe, and um, Syria being Shia or Alawite, uh, a for, uh, an even greater niche of Shia, and the continual struggle that there that is always going on, and, and I believe I'd read from a foreign writer that uh, that uh, they saw this as like the the lid about to be blown off a civil war in Sunni versus Shia, which we saw back against Iraq and Iran, but uh, this could really uh, take in everyone. Um, so all I've got, I hope you're doing well. Uh, give me a call if you ever want to just throw some ideas around. I can't wait to hear more. Uh, I wish you could crank these things out daily. Um, you've got my email, robert at mclaurin.com. That's M-C-L-A-U-R-I-N-E dot com. And my new cell number is 615-804-6079. Um, one last thing. Uh, I really have been looking at how to group your information in a way that I could present it to my teen boys and family and friends and all that. And uh, to teens or people that have shown in, that are just now showing interest in prophecy, I grew up loving it and hearing it all. But now, not only do no young people have any basis of knowledge, it, all the older and 40-somethings and greater, uh, all they know is the Hal Lindsey version and the pre-trib rapture, things like that. And so uh, I do wish there was a concise couple of three videos uh, that's offered as more of an intro overall and then jump off into the more detailed stuff, the pre-wrath rapture in detail and the proofs of all those and lastly, one thing I do want to uh, encourage and thank you for is uh, I noticed, I think I noticed in one of your last one or two podcasts was that you, when you mentioned pre-wrath you, or the, the uh, beliefs of pre-wrath, whether you called it by name or not, you presented it strictly as the truth rather than uh, having to take five minutes out of your train of thought and defend what you're about to say and all that, which you can, we continually have to do because it's a battle against the traditional mindset and, uh, 
So uh, I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Present present your case as is, and if somebody wants to refute it or wonder how you got to that point, they can always go back in time and, and see where your uh, building blocks are. But everyone in the pre-trib camp just, camp just throws stuff out there, all these assumptions with no proof whatsoever, and with the implication that everybody knows exactly what they're talking about, everybody has bought in, and I would like for you to do the same on a certain level, uh, and, uh, you know, you've got the other videos to back it up, so great hearing from you again, talk to you later. And God bless you. Thanks. I think that that is something to watch in terms of it could, you know, causing a major conflict that could set the stage for or intensify the reason for the Muslim, uh, you know, whatever conquests in the eyes of Antichrist and, and whomever else to, to occur. Um, I can't see any specific prophecy related to any of that um, and I can't see any scenario where that is is significant for the prophecy except for it could further cause this explosion in, in the Middle East world uh, and the need for as far as the Antichrist is concerned and the the destruction of, of that uh, the, those countries in order to, to bring peace so it certainly could set set up the Antichrist but the wars themselves, as far as I understand them right now, are not a result or of prophecy being fulfilled or anything like that. In let, in, other than in a, if it is, in fact, going to develop into that, it would only be in a very peripheral way that it is fulfilling prophecy, that is setting up for prophecy to be fulfilled. Okay. All right, that is the end of the show. If you have any questions, you can email me through the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. If you want to support this show, one of the best ways to do it is to give a good rating and review on iTunes. iTunes puts a lot of stock in that kind of thing, so it would certainly help if you did that. If you wanted to support in any other way, you can certainly go to BibleProphecyTalk.com. Thanks a lot for your listening and for your input, and we will talk to you later. Bye-bye.